Hey, what's up? Hello, friends. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. It is Wednesday, July 27th. Good God, I can't believe it's already August or almost August. Hasn't really felt like much of a summer, to be honest. Um, Been just too busy doing studies and work and applying to jobs now and the bad attack. Um, Yeah, it's been kind of a strange summer, the last month at least, but hey, you know, the weather's nice. It's not too hot here still and not too much to complain about, I guess. You know, I'm sentient. I'm, uh, I'm alive in here, so we'll count that as a win. So I guess all good on that front. I hope everyone had a good weekend, good start of their week. Apologize, I was off Monday, got busy, but yesterday I put out a little recap episode or a re-release episode, I guess, from back in January, so hopefully you check that out because something I will be talking about today actually does relate to that episode, so definitely check it out. But I first want to say that it looks like I have been proven correct, even dare say I, dare I say it, vindicated in my worries about a liberalism becoming kind of Christian nationalism. What I mean here is that for a while on the podcast, you know, I've talked about how basically a liberal democracy, as we are seeing in Hungary or parts of Poland or maybe even in Brazil, are now sadly here. And it's mainly a movement of an extreme religious fundamentalism who want to kind of enforce their view of freedom onto others. And mainly in the Western democracies I'm talking about, it's mainly shown up in the form of Christian nationalism, and, you know, it's really starting to concern me that the GOP is going down that road, and there's enough people, enough crazies like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, Trump himself, Sarah Palin, just the people on message boards, Lauren Boebert, Boebert, whatever you want to call her, there's enough people now saying this stuff out loud that I've even seen more podcasts, I've even seen CNN start to talk about the problem of Christian nationalism in the United States. And look, I am not at all saying Christianity is bad. I am a huge supporter of all different types of religion, as long as they're peaceful and let people live. Um, but, but there is this kind of militant Christian nationalism. I recommend people read the book, Jesus and John Wayne. It's a pretty fascinating book on kind of how this started. But I think the fact that, you know, we have, we've had people like Lauren Bear go out there and just openly say that they don't want uh, separation of church and state anymore, and that this is a Christian nation, and that this nation was never founded on secularism, it's causing some alarm, and rightfully so. The fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene views all Democrats as atheists, even though that's just not true, it's, it's concerning, and they, they seem to want to make this a Christian nation and enforce... Christian views on even non-Christians, right? And we're seeing the GOP definitely seem to want to look more like Fidesz, the party in Hungary ran by Viktor Orban, and they're focusing on that version of democracy, which is kind of forcing their version on the rest of society. Kind of, I think that's why you would call it a liberal democracy, because instead of the majority voting for something, it's the minority controlling who votes so that they can enforce their version of reality on the majority. And we are starting to see that. And, you know, I just have to ask, why do you think everyone from Trump to Pence to Tucker Carlson have all gone to Hungary? Because they like the model and it's spreading. And, God, every time I see Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, I just want to rip my hair out or jump out my apartment window or, I don't know, just, you know, it's it's really tough watching them speak. I just, it really, really worries me that they are actually seen as heroes. Now, side note, lighter note, Marjorie Taylor Greene is kind of strong. Like, I've, I've seen her workout videos. Like, she can pump some iron. So 
she has that going for her at least, but I don't know if she has too many brains going on. Anyways, um, I've co- I've covered that enough in other topics, but I just wanted to say it is good that more and more people are talking about it and the worries that it poses because we are seeing a very radicalized GOP. Moving on, though, the first thing I did want to talk about is the Electoral Count Act and some reform that could be happening, should be happening, most likely will be happening, but I don't get my hopes up much anymore. But before I get into it, I, I do want to mention again, I put out an episode yesterday where I talked about it, so listen to that. It's a re-release, but it kind of goes over the actual specifics. But first, I want to start with a nice and depressing quote from The Atlantic over the weekend, because I think it's a good segue. And it is basically an interesting article about how we should not be surprised that there was a coup on January 6th, or an attempted coup, excuse me, on January 6th. And we should not be surprised that democracies can backslide, because it is constantly happening around the world, right? We've seen it happen in Myanmar recently. We're seeing it happen in Sri Lanka right now. We're seeing it happen in Hungary. We've seen it happen in Poland. We've seen it happen in Russia, right? It's not surprising, but... The problem is, is that Americans are too self-interested and focused on ourselves. So we don't really follow world events and see these trends. And the article just talks about lessons from around the world. So it's called America's self-obsession is killing our democracy. And the subtitle reads, the U.S. still has a chance to fix itself before 2024. But when democracies start dying, as ours already has, they usually don't recover. Happy stuff. (laughs) Nice. Really warms the heart, warms the soul. And the article is by Brian Kloss. And anyways, I want to read a, a segment. It's kind of long, so bear with me. But I think it kind of sums up why something like the Electoral uh, the, the electoral Count Act needs to be reformed. So at least we can start doing something before it's too late. And so the article reads, The American system isn't just dysfunctional. It's dying. Nyhan believes there is now a significant risk that the 2024 election outcome will be illegitimate. Even France, who has been more optimistic about America's democratic resilience, doesn't have a particularly reassuring retort to the doom mongers. He says, I don't think U.S. democracy will collapse, but just hover in a flawed manner for a while, such as in Poland or Hungary. We, we may not be doomed, but we should be honest. The optimistic assessment from experts who study authoritarianism globally is that the United States will most likely settle into a dysfunctional equilibrium that mirrors a deep democratic breakdown. It is not yet too late to avoid that, but the longer we wait, the more the cancer of authoritarianism will spread. We don't have long before it's inoperable. And that's the end of that quote. And, excuse me, and it's, it's all true, in my opinion. Um, You know, I'm beating a dead horse here at this point, but it does seem like that's what's happened in places like Poland and Hungary is you kind of have a hollowed out democracy. It looks like a democracy. It smells like a democracy. It kind of acts like a democracy, but it's not anymore. And, you know, I don't, I don't see the U.S. going into some like fascist authoritarian state like, or, or like communist China. I think it would be a hollowed out democracy like I talked about earlier. And the reason I read this is because it's... Um, I think it's really true that there have been warning signs for years. And people like myself have been somewhat disappointed with the lack of urgency by Democrats like Biden. And also, I guess at the same time, how quickly the GOP seems to be embracing this, right? Because, I mean, you've had people like Mike Lee, senator in Utah, who said American, like the American system is not about democracy. I'm butchering the quote, but he said something along those lines. And 
it just seems like maybe the democratic system that we've cherished is not what everyone wants anymore. And there's there's been a lot of studies recently that, that have kind of mirrored this, is where they've talked about how a lot of Americans have started to say that, I think it was like about a third of Americans said that they would be fine with having a dictator over a democratic leader if it made life better. And, you know, we keep seeing people's fear of the other side is getting stronger. Both sides think that the biggest threat is the other side. And so that, that worries me that, you know, if you put the right person in power, they would not do good for the unity of all Americans. Um, and as the article discusses, it is really hard to go back once the process is already happening, once the wheels are turning, once it's already occurring, right? And, you know, we're seeing that in states where, you know, Republican state legislatures are changing who counts the votes, who certifies the votes after an election. We're seeing people like Doug Mastriano, for example, in Pennsylvania, right? Like, what's her name? Uh, Carrie Lake or whatever in, in, in Atlanta, or not Atlanta, in Arizona. She's batshit crazy. These people don't believe in what this country, in my opinion, stands for. And I guess, I guess where I would go next is that there is one, at least, thing we can do to make it a little bit more protected, our elections a little more protected, maybe try to stop this from happening. And it involves the proposal to reform the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Like I said, I'm not going to go into all the specifics <clears throat> excuse me, of this act because I have an episode re-released from yesterday, but basically it was used by John Eastman and others to try and interpret it to make it sound like the vice president could decertify the vote or persuade to interfere in the election, right? And basically, we need to make it so it's clear that the vice president cannot overturn an election result. And I guess it was vague enough that some crazier lawyers like John Eastman thought that there was a way to do it. And anyways, getting into it a bit, the Hill reports here that, in quotes, the Electoral Count Act unveiled, or sorry, the Electoral Count Act reform bill unveiled by a bipartisan group of senators on Wednesday of last week, that is, intends to reform the Electoral Count Act of 1887 by making sure that the sitting vice president doesn't have the power to overturn a presidential election and make it harder for the lawmakers to object the Electoral College vote. And remember, like I said, it was Eastman and others who really tried to convince Trump and others like Pence to decertify the results. And again, Mike Pence did not go along with it. But obviously the wacky theories worked with Trump, Sidney Powell, other people obviously thought it could work. And it wasn't feasible or likely legal, but from what I've understood, due to the vagueness of the Electoral Count Act, people thought that it was worth trying. So this would be a good step, right? And so Senator Ben Cardin, who is a Democrat from Maryland, he is one of the co-sponsors of the bill, said on Saturday that he hopes the newly proposed reform can be passed through Congress and enacted before the midterms. And obviously that is super important here because as we've gone over on this show a lot, there's a lot of election deniers on the ballot in swing states specifically. And I should also note that there is significant bipartisanship really going on with this. From, uh, from what I've read, nine Republicans have joined in on drafting this. And honestly, it's in everyone's favor because Obviously, it was the Trump administration who made a mockery of this and just completely shit on the Constitution during the last election. Excuse my language. But of course, if things keep getting crazier, it wouldn't be crazy to think that eventually the Democrats could do something as well. So it's better for everyone if, if this is just re-solidified. And so 
Something even more rosy, actually, no, honestly, I'm not being sarcastic, is that the National Review, a conservative publication which has kind of danced to support Trump a lot, has even shown support for this reform. There's an article from yesterday called Time to Pass the Electoral Count Act Reform, and it writes in quotes here, This system held up under enormous stress created by Donald Trump's challenge in 2020. Its success in surviving that test cautions against radical change. But 2020 revealed ambiguities and vulnerabilities that could be reduced by prudent reform in order to prevent a repeat of January 6th. We have previously urged Republicans in Congress to basically support these reforms. End quotes. Now, while it's good to see that even the National Review is supporting something like this, and Republicans are as well, there's again the political realities of this. And they're not great. They're they're really not great. So we have a narrow window, right? before the midterms. And as most of us know, Congress is really struggling to get anything done right now. The administration is struggling. Now, there's been some bipartisan legislature on a myriad of topics, but it's still not enough. And the National Review article writes here in quotes, enacting electoral count reform will only get more difficult as the next presidential election approaches. Democrats, including President Biden, have dragged their feet on Electoral Count Act reform until they could convince their voting base that no broader voting or election bills have been, votes, have been voted to pass. House Republicans have been less receptive to reform, so the chances of bipartisan legislation may dim in 2023. And yeah, it, I think that's the most ominous part of all of this, is that if the midterms don't go well for Democrats, and we have like Doug Mastriano appointing his own Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, and Doug Mastriano winning, it's I, I think it's going to be pretty much game over, and uh, that just that just doesn't make me feel good. Now, I I'm optimistic now, and again, I don't know if actually reforming the Electoral Count Act is going to do that much because we have to remember that now the MAGA people know what not to do next time. And so it might be a little too little, a little too late. There's a song that goes a little too little, a little too late, you know, so yeah. Anyways, uh, one light note before we get on to something else dark and not so happy. Um, You know, I was watching the January 6th hearings, what was it, last Thursday? You know, some interesting revelations. Not great news when you see like Secret Service guys protecting Pence calling their families and saying they're probably not going to make it. You know, just to see how insane Trump was and how difficult it was for him to condemn the rioters. I mean, nothing new, so I'm not going to really stick on that very much. But there was one kind of funny part, if you want to call it funny, and it was when Josh Hawley is seen just running. (laughs) And I'll just say that, of course, I I would have ran, too, if there's an angry mob of people trying to hang congressmen and women and senators and Mike Pence. I would have probably ran, too. Like, what else do you do? You know, people say... The best thing to do is run if you can. (laughs) But there was something ironic and just tragic about Josh Hawley running because remember, he's the guy that he was, he really got famous as one of the first people to want to decertify the election. He, he really, he really got prominent during that November, December post election chaos. And he's the guy who raised his fist to the mob right before all this shit show started. And it just shows me that this guy's a coward, you know, as much as he's big talk and tries to act like this populist, homegrown, you know, MAGA boy, he's a coward. He's an elite. He went to Stanford, and I believe it was either Harvard or Yale. I don't have it in front of me. One of those two, and Stanford, you know, grew up upper middle class, moved back to Missouri just for image mainly. Like, this guy's this guy's such a coward, and I, I'm surprised more people don't see through him, but it was just funny seeing him run, you know? I, 
I hope I hope the veil comes off of him being some like populist, you know, MAGA hero, because he's not. He's just a grifter like the rest. Um, but something funny is that in Missouri, the Democratic Party in the senator's um, home state, right, because that's where Holly is, is advertising a Holland Holly 5K race. Hey, I'm semi-close to Missouri. Maybe I should go run it. But yeah, so the people running in the um, in the midterms on the Democratic side are holding a fundraising event, a 5K. Um, you know, the Holland Holly 5K. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I, I should go sign up and do it. Uh, oh man. Oh, Holly. What a what a what a pathetic figure. You know, that's that's really all I can say. Um, but it's 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 good that people are starting to see this now. I don't know if the hardcore supporters are seeing this, but at least some people are. Anyways, moving on. I think it was about two weeks ago, if you guys remember, that I talked about how the MAGA movement is starting to create a farm team. You know, they're starting to create their own think tanks, national conservative academia organizations that kind of go against, say, like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute and kind of creates this own national conservatism, not the kind of neoconservative Reagan era views. And, you know, that was like like just to refresh people's mind if they didn't listen, you know. Trump realized that kind of the Reagan era conservatives were useful for him, but they really weren't the MAGA people. And you know, he got opposition from a lot of the MAG- from a lot of the national neocons and stuff like that. So now Trump needs his own kind of MAGA types, the people that actually agree in the MAGA movement and want to like further some of the views. So now it looks like that is escalating even more. And now if Trump were to get a second term, which we don't know, but it does seem like he's going to run more and more each day. It looks like he would also try now to replace a majority of civil servants in positions that dictate policy, public policy. And for a long time, we've known that Trump has wanted to gut the civil service, drain the swamp, whatever, get rid of the deep state. He's not respected the independence of government servants. So to him, those who work for agencies, bureaucrats, they're deep state workers. They're not neutral workers. And when I talk about the civil servants, I'm talking about the people that don't get turned over with each administration. They're the ones who kind of stay through administrations. They're not political. They just work inside of these agencies. They're not the appointees. They're not the agency heads. They're just the day-to-day workers. You know, they could be IRS workers, DMV workers, homeland security analysts, lawyers in the CIA. You know, there's lots of these people who really don't have political allegiances, or if they do, they don't make them public. And so, there's some alarming information coming out, which is really not surprising, to be honest, but Jonathan Swan from Axios, I I always like his perspectives because it's really hard to tell which side he's on. But anyways, he has an interesting piece out this week kind of about this. And the idea of this piece is that, you know, something we've talked about, Trump learned the first time that he cannot have civil servants in there that are not loyal to him. He cannot have moderates in the agencies who may decide to not obey some of his orders. He needs loyalists. And that would be more like the Jeffrey Clarks who would run the DOJ, or Michael Flynn, or Sidney Powell, uh, Kash Patel, these type of people. So Swan writes in quotes here, Sources close to former President Trump say he would immediately reimpose his Schedule F executive order if he takes back the White House after the 2024 presidential elections. Axios' Jonathan Swan reports. And basically what it would do, the Schedule F policy that Trump would reimpose, it would effectively upend the modern civil service and put future presidents in the position to bring in their own loyalists and kind of re- reinvent a traditional bureaucracy around loyalism, 
and not merit, but instead almost kind of a spoils system again. Um, something we kind of have wanted to get away from, right? Like, it, it's been nice over the last hundred years that we've gone away from patronage towards merit-based appointments and the ability to take tests, right? After the Pendleton Act in the late 1800s, we've really moved away from the spoils system or the patronage system, though obviously there's still hiring bias. But it's really nice to see that public service, public management, public administration have mainly been done by people that are just good at what they do, not who they support. And what would happen here is that now, based on this Schedule F rule, Trump would Trump or any future president would be able to handpick certain people in these positions. So let's go on. I actually, interestingly, wrote a paper about this because a lot of what I'm studying in, 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 my, in my master's program right now is this stuff because I... I'm studying public policy and public administration, so I, I want to be a public manager probably. And so we look at public personnel management and human resource management and how the civil service really does have a personnel crisis. And it's interesting because I actually wrote a, a midterm paper, I believe, about this, where I chose the topic of gutting the civil service and how Trump and Schedule F was a serious issue because the idea of independence from political bias is super important in public management. And this would completely upturn over 150 years of moving in the right direction. And so back in 2020, to give some more information on the background of Schedule F, is that Trump signed an executive order which established a new employment category for federal employees. And this is what Schedule, or so, sorry, Section F is. And from my understanding, Biden basically had it overturned immediately. But if Trump were to come back into office or any Republican, MAGA-verse adjacent Republican, were to come back in office, they would definitely reenact it. And there is a quote that worries a lot of experts. So at a recent rally, Trump basically said, we will pass critical reforms making every executive branch employee fireable by the President of the United States. The deep state must and will be brought to heel. And so that's why I think a lot of people are now talking about this again, because they're hearing Trump bring this up. And of course he would do this, let's be honest. And I should explain Schedule F a little more before we get into more of my rants. <laughs> so basically tens of thousands of civil servants have roles deemed to have some influence over policy. Obviously, policymakers work in the government, not surprising. But these certain people that actually work in influencing policy, so not all civil servants, but tens of thousands, would be deemed Schedule F employees. And those levels of influence, basically, according to what I've gathered, would be people working in confidential material, policy determining material, policy making material, or policy advocating material. Side note, I think you want people dealing with confidential information to be somewhat neutral. But anyways, these employees that are classified Schedule F, instead of being able to be appointed and just working their whole career, they could be fired by the president or any of his administration, or they could be relocated by the president. And even more interesting, even if they're not fired, once they're reassigned or relocated to a different department, they would lose their protections and benefits, which would basically make them at-will employees. So even if they're not fired, there would be almost an incentive to quit. And so it's basically just eroding this independence and actually the stability of government work. So to make this even worse, from what I've gathered, and now the numbers vary, it's between 50 to 7,000 employees in the federal government that meet this Schedule F criteria. 
Now, there's about 2 million civil servants in the federal workforce, so it's not a crazy, insane number, but 50,000 to 60,000 employees that deal with confidential material and work in the policymaking sphere, if all of them can be handpicked based on their political allegiance, that is worrying. That is very worrying, right? And I guess the difference here is that the president can appoint people, right? They can usually appoint a couple thousand people to lead different agencies. These are the agency heads that the appointment power that the president has. This is normal. What's different is that now we're looking at, but maybe closer to 100,000 people that are not agency heads, but are just doing their job. So basically it would just politicize the civil service, which is not really what we want. And he could replace people that are loyal to his America first agenda, right? Now, if this is not hollowing out of institutions or a slow moving coup, I don't know what it would be. Also, it's, it's again, kind of ironic that Trump would want to do this because he always rants about the deep state and the swamp. But this is actually very much swampy, very deep statey if you're putting in people loyal to somebody. It, 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 it makes no sense. And also, like, just the reality on a more day-to-day base where it would affect average Americans is that polarizing the civil service could really ruin the day-to-day operations of the government and the services that taxpayers receive. That's also something just more tangible about this. Going on, though, Jonathan Swan does seem to believe that this will happen, and this is because he's apparently conducted dozens of interviews with people close to Trump or people working for Trump. Apparently, they've kept anonymity just to be able to keep doing what they're doing. I don't know. But it also sounds like even though we... like. I guess there's a there's a narrative, and it's, it's, it's not even a narrative, it's just kind of a reality that Trump is fixated on 2020. And so a lot of people think he's only fixated on 2020, but according to Swan's reporting, he is also quite focused on the future, and he has people working for him preparing a 2025 administration, just in case. <laughs> and Swan writes here in quotes, well-funded groups are already developing lists of candidates selected often for their animus against the machine. In, in line with Trump's long-running obsession with draining the swamp, this includes building extensive databases of people vetted as being committed to Trump and his agenda. So basically, from my understanding, in 2017, before he became president, Trump had no preparation and he had to rely on people from previous administrations, the typical Republicans that now we call rhinos. That is why there were somewhat sane people around him who stopped his worse impulses, right? But it seems like they are now doing research, prepping to find people to put into these positions, especially if they do Schedule F. And so instead of having like Mark Esper stand up to Trump, it could be like Cash Patel now as the Secretary of Defense, which Trump wanted, or Stephen Miller or Dan Scavino. You know, catch my drift, it's not good. But also, it's also just not going to be agency heads. It's going to be completely systemic, and that's a problem. Now, Swan Swan has an interesting part in the article. He discusses um, what Democrats are basically trying to do to stop this or at least respond to this. He writes that Jerry Connolly, a Democrat from Virginia who's a representative, he chairs the subcommittee that oversees the federal uh, civil service. And he is among a small group of lawmakers who have basically worried about Schedule F even after Biden rescinded excuse me, rescinded the order. And Connolly has been very alarmed and he's been trying to just raise this issue at every point possible. And he actually attached an amendment to this year's defense bill to prevent a future president from resurrecting Schedule F. The House did pass it, but guess what? It's being blocked in the Senate. So, which is ironic to me. You would think both sides would not want this 
But again, the Republican Party has been corrupted, and there's a there's a cancer amongst the. Uh, there's just a growing cancer in the party, um, and it's it's problematic. But we just can't let this this pass, you know. So it is nice to see that Democrats have this on their mind. But again, until it's passed, I am not. I'm gonna not be too happy, I guess. And I, I do recommend reading this piece. It's called A Radical Plan for Trump's Second Term. I should also just add that what worries me most about a second Trump term aside from this, which is quite worrying, I think would just be the amount of revenge he would want on those who wronged him, right? Like the January 6th committee is obviously pissing him off. All the coverage is pissing him off. The rhinos are pissing him off. The Biden administration is pissing him off. He's a very angry guy. And I'm just worried that he would have a revenge tour for everyone that's wronged him. He would be vicious and likely to go after political enemies. Like, it just seems like a second Trump term would be insane. You know, there's just so much anger on the MAGA side. Like, I'll, I'll watch some of Marjorie Taylor Greene's speeches or Lauren Boebert or even some of the more sane ones who've completely lost it. And I'm just worried what would actually happen if Trump was back in power. Especially if Trump is not held accountable for 1-6 and somehow remains involved in politics. It's just not good. I just don't think we could survive four more years of it. I will add, though, that I am still not 100% certain that Trump runs. I think the midterms are going to be a big, big point here. Like, if, if the MAGA candidates do well, and Trump knows that there's a lot of state election boards that are now in control of MAGA candidates, I think he would run, and because there wouldn't really be a worry about a legitimate or illegitimate election. And that's a whole other problem. But I think the midterms are going to be important. Now, one more thing I'll add, this is adjacent to all this, is that I guess involving accountability, the DOJ is expanding its probe into people close to Trump. Um, Mark Short, Mike Pence's chief of staff, has uh, testified, and this does seem to mean that they're getting closer and closer to Trump. Like, Mark Short is one of the highest, highest ranking people to actually be testifying, so maybe that's a good sign. Again, I'm not going to celebrate yet. Thing I just want to mention really quick before we're out of here, it, it involves the world economy, growing fears of a recession, all that fun. Um, it's just interesting because it seems like the Biden administration is somewhat denying the threat of a, of a recession, but then at the same time, international groups are sounding the alarm. So you're getting Biden's administration kind of downplaying it. But then, for example, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has uh, said that a global recession could be at hand. But then at the same time, you have people like Janet Yellen saying, eh, it's not going to be that bad. We're not going to enter one. And kind of their definition of what a recession is has kind of changed. And I'll be honest, I don't really believe the Biden side because the IMF economic counselor and director of research, Pierre Oliver Gorniakis, said in quotes here, the outlook has darkened significantly since April. And this is someone who clearly is seeing trends around the world. The IMF obviously follows a lot of different countries. I was mentioning recently that, um, what is it, Sri Lanka is looking for bailouts and loans from the IMF. Sri Lanka is in complete economic collapse. A lot of Africa is struggling. Europe is being hit. China is stagnating. There's a lot of issues. So I think the IMF might have a better picture on what's happening globally. And, and that really does check out for me. You know, there's always the case that it might not be as bad in the United States. But the UN news website, for example, highlights three economic examples of why a recession could be coming. So I just want to go over those really quick. It writes here, starting in the US, for example, 
in quotes, reduced household purchasing power and tighter monetary policy will drive growth down to 2.3% this year and 1% next year. So about 3% decline in growth. Um, we have to remember that, you know, they're talking about raising interest rates to one full point potentially. So yeah, that's, that's obvious. Um, I've seen, you know, the, the, the cost of used cars is starting to decline, housing prices, everything, like things are starting to go down, not looking good. Then the article moves on to China. It notes in quotes here, China's slowdown has been worse than anticipated, mainly amid COVID-19 outbreaks and lockdowns with negative effects from Russia's invasion of Ukraine continuing. Moreover, further lockdowns and a deepening real estate crisis there has pushed growth down to 3.3% this year, the slowest in more than four decades, excluding the pandemic. And I don't think people cover it enough. Maybe I should do a full episode on this is China's housing crisis is looking somewhat similar to what happened in 2008. And that could be really problematic for the global economy if it did happen, because we have to remember China is a huge economy and a lot of the world depends on its on its goods and services. Right. And finally, the the U.N. news article mentions the eurozone, noting in quotes here, growth has been revised down to 2.6 percent this year and 1.2 percent in 2023, which is, by the way, not good reflecting spillovers from the Ukraine war and tighter monetary policy. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know, between the United States, Europe and China, that is a lot of the world economy. So if they're all seeing seeing um, a decline in growth and stagnation in a sense, uh, yeah, I, I think there could be some problems around the world. And, and, you know, I mean, the EU, for example, is also seeing just fracturing because now Germany is struggling with rising fuel costs, having to resort back to coal. Now you're having Italy facing a, a crisis as well. And Spain, for example, I, I saw they've, they've been throwing some shade at Germany because remember Germany back in the day did not want to bail out Greece, for example, did not want to help Italy or Spain during the last recession. And now Germany needs help. And Spain is like, well, maybe you should have been a little more on it here. Like, we're seeing fracturing again between Northern Europe and Southern Europe. And now with economic issues, like there's just a lot of things in front of us that are unclear how they're going to turn out, I guess would be the best way I would say. And I think the administration, the Biden administration, that is, is is downplaying things a little bit because we're going into an election and they're not doing well. And I, I don't know if they want to just be blunt and say, yeah, there could be some serious issues. Now, again, there's not a, not a recession yet. Inflation has gone down a little bit. Gas prices have gone down a little bit in the United States. But again, if if a global crisis is triggered, the U.S. would not be immune from it. So anyways, lots of happy, rosy topics today. I want to thank you guys for listening. I'll be back on Friday. Again, this is the Center from Reality podcast. You can find me on Twitter if you want to call me out or talk. Um, you have any recommendations? Uh, you can always email centeredfromreality at gmail.com if you have any uh, requests ideas, people you want to have on the show, etc. And uh, thanks for listening and have a great day.